Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 27th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Scientific American writer J.R. Minkle joins us to talk about six big current debates in science. We'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news, too. First up, we'll hear from Maria Zuber. She's the head of the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences over at MIT, and she was also a member of the committee that last week released a major new report on women in science under the auspices of the National Academy of Sciences, National Institutes of Health, and other institutions. On Friday, I visited her at MIT, where we talked about the report and also about her research on planetary mapping. Professor Zuber, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, it's good to be here. Tell me about this report. What? Are, how did the report actually come into being? Okay, this report is actually a follow-on uh, from another National Academy report uh, that's called Rising Above the Gathering Storm. And this was a report that came out last year, and it addressed the challenges to America maintaining its preeminence in competitiveness. So obviously, one of the factors that came out of that was the utilizing the talent pool. And so as a consequence of that, uh, this study was commissioned. And what can you just briefly give us the bottom line? What was what were the findings of this report? I think we can divide the findings into uh, into two separate things. Okay, first of all, we took on the challenge um, to study the the literature about the differences between men and women, and we studied the biological, cognitive, and brain function differences uh, between men and women, and showed that while there certainly are differences between men and women. Uh, there are no differences that would cause women not to be able to excel in math, science, and engineering. That conclusion was not a surprise to many of us, but we now have all the literature on the matter documented in the report, and it's there for everyone to go and to see. The other conclusion that we found, and this one was a surprise, is that the lack of women uh, in academic positions is not primarily a pipeline problem. Um, many of us expected that the answer to this was going to be that there just wasn't a big enough pool of qualified applicants, but it turns out that that's not the case. Uh, we all wish that there were more women with advanced degrees, but, uh, but the, the numbers are increasing. Um, in many cases, they're reaching parity, still not in the physical sciences, but certainly in the biological sciences and the chemical sciences, the numbers are increasing greatly. And there's certainly a large enough pool uh, so that there should be uh, considerably more women uh, at higher, uh, higher levels in academia than what we see right now. Yeah, I was surprised to see that since 2000, more than half of the bachelor's degrees in science and engineering have gone to women. That's right. And, uh, and given the rapidity of the change and how quickly uh, the numbers have increased, uh, you certainly can't ascribe that to evolution. Right. So if it's not a pipeline problem, what is the problem? If you go in and you dissect what's really going on here, um, you have two matters that you have to contend with. The first of those is that women have to be hired into these positions. And then uh, when they are hired, you have to keep them. Okay. And those turn out to be two separate issues. And the first issue, the hiring issue, um, we found that there seems to be a tendency in academia, like other parts of life, that when you're trying to recognize something that's excellent, uh, it's easier to recognize excellence when it's something close to what you know. 
you know, when you're trying to envision somebody who would fit within a department who's doing excellent work, uh, it's more easy for people, for faculty members to envision people like their students or postdocs who undoubtedly are excellent, but it's not a, a fair representation of what the whole pool is. So part of it is just um, getting people to look more broadly at what defines excellence. Um, and then the matter for retention, it turns out that perhaps the the biggest impediment um, to uh, to succeeding within academics is not having a wife at home. Okay, and um, and you know many years ago, uh, uh, men had the academic positions, uh, their wives were at home uh, taking care of the house while they were working on their careers, and um, and not having the support structure at home. Uh, is a real challenge to people who are trying to build their careers, especially in the childbearing years. And, um, and so here we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, childcare, chores at home, the time that goes into that. And, uh, and this, this certainly affects women, but one of the interesting outcomes of this is that it affects most male junior faculty members these days as well because of the, impe uh, because of the, most of the uh, couples are du dual career couples. So, uh, so actually one of the outcomes of this report is that if we can, uh, make the situation for better for women in terms of retaining them into ac in academic positions once they get them, uh, we're also, these steps are also going to help, uh, with men as well. And it would be great if we could help everybody. And actually, one of the findings or one of the recommendations of the the current report is that if we're um, if we really want to get better in terms of uh, our representation of women on on college faculties, um, then we ought to get collect the data on this and um, and have universities um, you know willfully publish it so that we can put it out there and see which institutions are taking measures to make things better and. Um, and then, uh, uh, well, people will vote with their feet then. You know, women, women want to go places that they're comfortable. And if institutions are taking steps to, uh, just level the playing field, we're not asking for, uh, special, um, circumstances for women. We're just asking for the playing field to be level. And if the playing field is, field is level and if women feel like they're going to be treated fairly um, in all respects, uh, I think you'll see them gravitating to those institutions that are really being proactive about this matter. How do we ensure that the report's recommendations actually get implemented? I guess one of the general conclusions here is that if you look at what the challenges and what the impediments are, um, that you can't point to any one place in the system as being broken. Okay, um, that if we're really going to make progress in this area, it's going to take changes at many levels, starting at the levels of departments, um, up through university administrations, um, but then also uh, journals, societies, uh, you know, even Congress uh, getting involved in this. So, uh, so we're talking to all these people. Um, we're, uh, we've talked to uh, a group of academic societies and we've asked them to get together and we've developed a scorecard for progress, uh, defining progress, uh, in hiring and retaining women. And we've asked them to, uh, to get together and talk about it, 
modify it if necessary, but to be a clearinghouse for the collection of that information. And, um, and we frankly feel that peer pressure is best, that if, uh, if this group of societies was willing to collect this information and if universities decided to participate in this, uh, then this would, um, this would help this move forward. Let's talk about your research for a moment. Let's talk about what you actually do as a scientist. I know that you're uh, you're a planetary mapper. What what's going on in your research right now? Well, it's an it's an exciting time uh, for me. There's a spacecraft called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and that has just gotten into orbit around uh, Mars last year, and it's now achieved its mapping orbit. So within the next month, it will begin its uh, primary two-year mapping mission of Mars. And I'm responsible for the radio science experiment on that spacecraft. This spacecraft has a big antenna, um, which means that uh, very good signal for studying radio things, but also high data rates that it's going to transfer. So we will be doing high-resolution gravity maps of, uh, of Mars to look at the internal structure. Uh, but also we'll be um, using this information to look at uh, the structure of the atmosphere and the seasonal cycle of uh, carbon dioxide exchange between the polar caps and the atmosphere. And what other planets have you looked at? Well, let's see. We have, a, we have an experiment that is uh, en route to Mercury called the MESSENGER mission, which will be arriving at uh, MESSENGER in the year 2011. And, uh, and it, actually, the spacecraft just did a flyby of Venus last week, where we, uh, we actually collected some data um, looking at the reflectance of the Venus atmosphere. So it's good to be able to do some, um, some additional science while the spacecraft is in its cruise phase. Um, I also have a, an uh, experiment, actually two experiments on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which will be launched in 2008, where there we will map the topography of the moon in greater detail than we did the topography of Mars and, um, and hopefully make the definitive map uh, of the moon there, or, uh, or at least the definitive map for the next couple of decades. Um, and that, uh, that mission is, uh, it's being designed and the, the equipment's being built now. And, um, and in fact, yesterday I was just at a review. We have, uh, the other experiment we have on that spacecraft is a little device where we're going to range sending laser, uh, a laser from Earth up to range to the spacecraft in order so that we can get the position of the spacecraft very exactly um, that will help us uh, improve the gravity field of the moon so that we can uh, target images very precisely and allow us to do precision navigation and landing. I read somewhere that because of your work, our knowledge of the topography of Mars is actually superior to what we know about the topography of the Earth. Is that right? On a global basis. There are certainly... um, Parts of the Earth, such as the United States and Europe, where uh, where the topography is known much better than it is for Mars, but there are other areas on the Earth where we don't know the topography nearly so well. So, on a on a global basis, yes, the topography of Mars is known better than uh, than the Earth, and soon we'll know the Moon better than Mars. So. so, are there plans to use the same kind of techniques on the Earth? Can we launch stuff up and and actually look down on the Earth and get that level of uh, topographic? information uh, there are there are plans underway um, to do that now and um, 
and you know I get the question all the time how come you can do this for Mars and not for Earth and um, one there are two answers to that one of them is because they let us okay um, and on Earth when you get to very high resolution topography you run into national security issues okay um, but the other answer is and uh, this this might seem like a conundrum but in in some ways it's easier to do it for another planet um, Earth Earth has uh, an ocean, so and there are different techniques that are optimum when you're uh, trying to measure topography on land versus the ocean. And the other matter is that Earth has a very thick atmosphere, which uh, which causes uh, difficulties in trying to do very precise um, measurements from orbit. You can't get down real low because the, the spacecraft don't last very long. So there are there are practical challenges uh, as well, but of course those are offset by the practical challenges of actually sending a spacecraft to another planet. Professor Zuber, thanks very much. Good luck on your other planets and, and best of luck here on Earth too. Thank you very much. The report, Beyond Bias and Barriers, Fulfilling the Potential of Women in Academic Science and Engineering, is available at the website of the National Academies Press, www.nap.edu, or go to tinyurl.com slash qa6bz. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, allergic to cats? You can now buy mutant hypoallergenic cats. Story two, service with a smile. Businesses benefit from consumer satisfaction, whether a sales clerk's smile is sincere or phony. Story three, phishing attempts, where somebody emails you and tries to get you to give up personal financial information, almost doubled in the first six months of 2006 versus the six months before that. And story four, air travelers don't mind security delays unless one airport's delays are way worse than others. We'll be back with the answer, but first, J.R. Minkle is a longtime contributor to Scientific American. He recently joined the staff as a reporter, and he has a new feature out on our website called That's Debatable, Six Debates at the Frontier of Science. We talked in my office at Scientific American. Hey, J.R., how are you? Pretty good, Steve. Thanks for coming in. You've got this piece up on the website, the Scientific American website, the uh, Six Debates at the Frontiers of Science. Yeah. So give me the, the, the quick tour. What are the six debates? Um, well, there's uh, string theory, um, this uh, big proposal to to uh, mesh quantum physics and gravity and whether that's, uh, whether that's going anywhere or not. Um, there's whether global warming is causing hurricanes uh, to be stronger. Um, the Hobbit, uh, this uh, little skeleton found in Indonesia, whether that's a new species or just uh, sort of an inbred pygmy. There's um, how to study the relationship of diet to uh, chronic disease, um, whether uh, there have been a lot of um, uh, sort of dismal reports about whether a low-fat or high-vegetable or high-fiber diet does anything good for you, how do gas giant planets form, and uh, whether growing new brain cells is something that uh, is part of the, the process that keeps people from, from, being, uh, from being depressed. Why are these six the uh, the the debates in science that you you settled on as the big six? Well, you know, scientists are always debating different things, but I thought these were um, a lot of these have been in the news lately, and some of them touch on on really big or important themes. Like the string theory thing goes to the heart of of uh, of you know fundamental theoretical physics, um, the project that Einstein was working on, and 
and uh, whether that's you know, going anywhere, whether we might solve that any time in our lifetimes. A, a unification of all the uh, of all the other aspects of phys physics into one big theory. Yeah, that's right. And the you know the the hurricane thing. I think after Katrina, everyone's very concerned about that. Um, there's been an upswell of of interest in, in global warming, and and you know hurricanes are part of that, uh, or maybe. I um, mean, others were uh, things in the news that I've found interesting, but uh, hadn't really seen uh, pulled together in in that way. What, if anything, when, when you were doing the research on these on these six rather uh, disparate subjects, what, if anything, struck you as as a commonality among them, and what surprised you, if anything, while you were doing your research? Well, I think they all show how you know, how sort of tortured the relationship is between. Um, you know, between uh, the data and, I guess, theory or what scientists make of that data. I mean, there's sort of this, I don't know, romantic notion that, you know, a scientist just kind of looks at the data all spread out before him or her, and the conclusion is, is you know, somehow obvious. Well, I mean, a lot of times the, the data is really hard to get. Um, and, you know, even when it's more plentiful, people just disagree about what's, uh, what's convincing. Um, how would you ca categorize the the level of emotion in in these various debates? Is it uh, is it getting nasty in some of these fields? I mean, it's it's sort of surprisingly nasty in string theory. Um, some people uh, on the non-string theory side complain of of being you know unfairly attacked by by various members of that community. That's debatable. And it's about the six big debates in science going on right now by J.R. Minkle. J.R., thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. J.R.'s article is available free in our website's news section. That's www.siam.com slash news. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the stories. Story one, hypoallergenic cats are now on sale. Story two, smiles from sales clerks don't have to be real to satisfy consumers. Story three, email phishing expeditions almost doubled in 2006. And story four, security delays don't rankle unless there are longer waits at some airports than others. Time's up. Story one is true. Hypoallergenic cats are finally on sale. Most cats carry a gene for a glycoprotein called FELD1 that makes some people miserable, but one in 50,000 cats naturally lacks the gene. Well, a company searched for such cats, bred them, and produced a line of FELD1-free kitties. Price tag? About $4,000. Did you land on your feet? Story four is true. People are okay with security delays at airports, but start getting testy if one particular airport's delays are way worse than another, or if delays at one time of day are much longer than at another time at the same airport. The study appeared in the Journal of Air Transportation Management. Story three is true. Email phishing attempts were up 81% in the first six months of 2006 compared with the previous six months. Over 157,000 phishing emails were sent, but those emails go to multiple recipients so millions were actually targeted. For more info, check out the article Criminals Flock to the Internet at www.siam.com news. 
All of which means that story two about consumers being happy with real or fake sales clerk smiles is totally bogus. Because research reported in the Journal of Marketing found that consumers really can tell if a sales clerk is genuinely happy to serve them or is putting on a show, and businesses don't benefit from customer satisfaction and return traffic unless the smile is real. Yes, have a nice day. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. And check out the new daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, at our website and over at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Oh, mister. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon me, are you the floor walker here? Well, what do you think I am with this carnation? A float in the Rose Parade? <laughs>